with the outline itself is it's going to be continuous so that if you were to come every week or get the outline every week, it, you'll end up having a commentary on the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Somebody said, Pastor Monty, how long are you going to do this? I don't know, till the rapture. I don't know, I'm not sure. There's a lot of material here, but it'll help you because what I'm doing is I am uh, reading, of course, multiple sources, studying every uh, matter in depth in multiple sources, and then I'm also listening to different sources that I have online and, and uh, people that are far more scholarly than I, and so I'm listening to them, and that's going to be our approach. So this is an amalgamation of what I think is the best of the sources. So it will turn out to be valuable to you uh, as far as uh, even having a little Bible commentary. Now, uh, here's, here's one of the things right out of the gate. We're going to deal with it all. We're going to deal with it all. We're not going to pass over the difficult portions. But that means that sometimes we're going to be stuck on a topic for two or three weeks. Okay, for sure, for sure. Uh, there's no way to deal with it all because some of it floods right into the New Testament. And because of that, we're going we're gonna to stop at different places and some things will be dealt with in more uh, detail. For example, when we come, to, and, and I know a lot of you are interested in this topic, we come to Genesis chapter 6 and the, the giants and the earth, there were giants in the earth in those days. What in the world is that talking about? We're going to pause there and tell you exactly what the Apostle Peter and what Jude said it was talking about, okay? Because, uh, you know, Pastor Monty, we'll just pass over that. So in, in even doing a cursory, a cursory um, overview of the commentaries that I have, I was checking that passage to see who believes what. It was really interesting. It was very educational to me. Um, the older commentaries are honest. The newer commentaries are either dishonest or they pass over it without a comment. And you really can't do that and be faithful to the scripture. So we're gonna look at it. Now, having said that, it is not, you, you may walk out of the room on some lesson saying, man, I, I disagree with Pastor Monty about that. That's fine, okay? We're not, now when I'm dealing with fundamental basic core doctrine, no, 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 that's not good. But when I'm dealing with things that have an opinion, for example, very early in this series, we're going to address the issue of the gap theory. How many know what I'm talking about, the gap theory? Um, you're not a heretic if you believe in it, and you're not a heretic if you don't. Okay, I hope you heard what I just said. And we're going to go into the history and some of the pros and cons of that theory and how that works out and, and all those kind of things. Okay, so no one, no one should leave the um, classroom saying, well, he said so and this and this and this, so he's a heretic. Okay, no, no. We're actually going to study the Bible in depth. Now, as I'm going through things... I want the class to be somewhat interactive in that if you have a question, raise your hand and ask me, okay? I don't want to get stuck with 50,000 questions and never get through the material, but I do want you to ask me questions, okay? Especially when we're dealing with the Bible's text. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. If I can answer the question, I will. If I cannot answer the question adequately in my thinking, I will tell you I'll have to get back with you on that, that I don't know the answer to it. I'm not going to make stuff up, gloss things over, and blow smoke. Okay, that has happened way too much in the average church, college, and seminary, and that's created all kinds of problems because people don't understand where we are in this world today. The book of Genesis explains that. Okay, now, you, you know, you, you some, well, Pastor Monty, I just want to hear spiritual fruit loops. Okay, we're not going to have that, okay? No spiritual 
Twinkies will be passed out. And this is not, this is not for the faint of heart, okay? I believe the Bible, and there's a particular way in which we're going to approach the book of Genesis, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're not really getting into the text. We will do that next week or the week after, depending on how far I get through this lesson. But I would encourage you, those of you who are serious about this, save your lessons, put them in order, maybe buy a little three-ring binder, and end up at the end of the day having um, many, many, what would be hundreds if not thousands of hours of work on my part, and then you'll have a very good conglomeration of, of ideas and thinking. And there are going to be places where I'm going to say, well, I haven't formed a, an opinion, but here's several different opinions. There are going to be places like that. By the way, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. That Bible is a formidable book. Okay, for me to pretend that I have all the answers would only be to lie to you. And that, that's, that's, that's not good. So we're going to work on it together. Look at your lesson outline. Genesis Unleashed, chapters 1 through 11. Introduction. The book of Genesis is foundational to understanding the entire Bible. I cannot emphasize that enough. The progress of the New Testament church was dictated by the book of Genesis. We're going to get into that. The direction Paul went in his preaching, the fact that Paul went to Greece instead of going <laughs> deeper into Asia, what's called Asia or Bithynia, that is there, there's a Bible reason for that. Okay, It's an Old Testament reason. We'll get into all of that. Um, without understanding what happened in the beginning, the Bible appears disjointed, foreign, and sometimes downright odd. And how many of you, be honest, how many of you ever read a story in the Bible and you said, that's kind of weird? Yeah, let me, let me give you a little hint. The weirder the story sounds to you as a 21st century American, the more important is that story in your Bible. It is there. This didn't just happen randomly. And so it's those things that we consider odd that a lot of pastors and teachers won't touch it's those things that we really need to drill down upon because they're very, very significant. Um, but when one accepts Genesis at face value, the coherence of the entire Bible becomes apparent and exciting. Not only does Genesis provide a framework for understanding the entire Bible, but it also serves as an explanation for the times in which we live. Okay, so I need to give you some presuppositions as to how we're going to look at it. Number one, the book of Genesis was divinely inspired by God in such a way that every word in the Hebrew text was chosen specifically by God. It's a very carefully crafted sentence, okay? There will be times when I will appeal to the Hebrew text. We have in our hands, our King James Bible is the very best English translation, but it is very difficult to translate Hebrew idiom into English and make it make sense. One of the blessings of a King James Bible is that it's literal word for word, but sometimes the idioms cause us confusion because we don't know what the meaning is there and you can go off the rails. So we will be going back to some of the, the Hebrew text in this, okay? Um, though penned by Moses, the words are God's. In matters of meaning, appeal must be made to the Hebrew text. Now, I want to pause there. My assumption is Moses is the human penman. Why? Nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say Moses wrote the book of Genesis, but it does say over and over again that he was the penman for the law and the prophets. Jesus said this, okay? So understanding that, that the first five books of Moses, the Torah, has been attributed to uh, Moses is not just a traditional view, it is a biblical view. But now having said that, this is really foundational. These words are inspired by God. Don't ever forget that. So you cannot play fast and loose with the text. 
You cannot play fast and loose with the meaning. You, by the way, if it's in the Bible, folks, listen, like this morning's, this morning's message, I, I bet there prob probably are not three people in this church that have heard a Sunday morning message on the topic that I'm going to deal with this morning, okay? Maybe a Bible lesson somewhere way back in the day, but certainly not uh, a Sunday morning message. I think it's very, very important. I'm not gonna say anything more than that, but, uh, but the truth of the matter is, we're not gonna skip over the parts that are difficult. We're going to try to figure them out because if God put it in the Bible, it's important, okay? It is the height of shallow to look at something in the Bible and say, well, I don't want to study about that. That won't help me. Or in the current evangelical vernacular, my pastor, Monty, I just want you to tell me something that'll make me a better person. The Bible will make you a better person. But understanding it is vital, okay? If you're looking for a life coach, this is not life coach class, okay? This is Bible class. And you'll, you'll understand after a while. I think it's going to help you in a little bit, okay? In matters of meaning, appeal must be made to the Hebrew text if we have any controversial meanings. Point B, Genesis, as well as the rest of the Bible, should be interpreted literally, but literal interpretation involves the following considerations. Now, this is important because you're going to have people that are going to say, well, Pastor Monty, you know, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, that's just a series of, of, of spiritual um, analogies from which we need to draw a spiritual lesson. It's all allegorical and nothing more. I reject that. Because when you point to something that clearly, now the Bible uses some allegory, it's a literary device. It's a legitimate literary device. But when you point to something and say this whole section is allegory, you have now released that section from any possibility of proper interpretation. Okay, um, People who interpret the scripture primarily from an allegorical view, it's that what I mean by that is it says this, but actually it means this. Whenever a person does that, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can apply any level of meaning to the Bible. So we have, our church takes a literalist approach. Now that means that we come into conflict with science falsely so-called. And, and I'm using the words of Paul there. Science falsely so-called. We'll come into conflict with that. Pastor Monty, the science says this. Okay, if I've learned one thing in the last three years, it doesn't really matter what the science says. I have doubts about all of it, okay? And, and all of these things that are so firmly declared by the scientist or firmly declared by the archeologist, it is all on shifting sand. Do you know why that is? Because they establish a dogma and then they reject data that goes against the established dogma. There's a lot of that out there. So um, we're, we're going to look at the Bible from a literal standpoint. So number one, what does literal mean? It means literal meaning, vocabulary, and it's meaning at the time Genesis was penned. Okay, really important. So we have to know what did these words mean to the people who were reading them. Well, Pastor Monty, how can we know that? The good news is we have a treasure trove 
of information from the Jewish people, from the Hebrew people, that goes back many, even thousands of years. Okay, so we, we can get a glimpse as to how they viewed something. What did this word mean to them? So when you're defining a word, whether it be Hebrew or Greek word, um, your lexicon that where the definitions of these words are, are found, uh, you're going to look at those things. Those words were actually viewed usually both in a sacred text meaning and in a common use meaning. Okay, so for example, the word uh, baptize is a, it's a, a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, okay? Well, Pastor Monty, what does the Greek word baptizo mean? It always and without exception in both secular and sacred literature means to dunk or to plunge underwater, period. And we not only have scripture to indicate that, but we have secular sources. So for example, the Greeks would speak of a ship that sank. They would speak of that ship as having been baptized, okay? It didn't just get a little rain on the deck, okay? It went all the way under. Now, now well, Pastor Monty, why, why didn't they translate it uh, to dunk or plunge or to dip? They could have, but our King James translators, they were good men. They were scholarly men, but they were um, um, uh, Anglican, Church of England, okay? The Church of England practiced sprinkling. So rather than become uncomfortable with that word and their practice being a little bit different from each other, they invented the word baptize, okay? They, it wasn't an invention, but it's a transliteration from the Greek word. They put that word in there. By the way, can I blow your mind a minute? Your modern versions do that a lot in the book of Genesis. They take a Hebrew word that they don't want to translate and they anglicize it so that it's like a new word to us. Pastor Monty, no. I'll give you one of the prime examples. Genesis chapter 6. The Bible says in the, those, there were giants in the earth in those days. The word underlining the word giant is the word Nephilim in the Hebrew. And it's correctly translated giants, meaning people of significant physical size. Many of your modern versions throw the Hebrew word at you. There were Nephilim in the earth. They don't say giants. Why? To obfuscate what the meaning really is. I really struggle with that. To me, that, that's dishonor. Well, Pastor Ron, we, we can't really believe in the jolly green giant, do you? No, no, I, I don't, I don't. But I believe in something that was different from humanity, and there's no doubt. And part of that difference was their size, okay? And I'm not ashamed of what God has said, nor am I going to try to hide it by just throwing Hebrew words at you that you don't know or understand. So those are there's a couple examples. Number two, grammatical. Grammatical considerations. Hebrew has a grammar, just as English does. The patterns for word usage. Proper interpretation takes this into account. Proper grammar removes a lot of wiggle room in interpretation, okay? So because I minored in New Testament Greek when I was in Bible college, I'm more familiar with that. But in New Testament Greek, the grammar is much more precise than English. So one of the marks of a decaying language is the excessive use of prepositions. Now there are prepositions in Greek, but the endings of the words, so for example, the nouns, the ending of the word indicates the use of the word in that sentence. So if for instance, anthropos, that means man, we get our word anthropology from that word. Anthrop 
anthropos, if I see that word in the Greek New Testament, it always means man is the subject of the sentence because the os ending always means subject. If I were to see the, words, uh, the word anthropou, that means of the man, okay? Of the man. Why? How, why? Because the OU ending, I'm anglicizing now for you, the OU ending always means of, okay? It has the meaning of of. Um, it, and then there's singular and plural. There's the case, and those are called case endings. Do you know what that does for the person who reads Greek? Number one, it makes them understand English, okay? You do understand English. But, but number two, it makes it absolutely certain as to what this word is referring to, how it's being used in the sentence. It takes away the wiggle room, and I believe that the New Testament, God waited for the Koine Greek to be at this particular level that it makes it so precise you really don't have a lot of wiggle room. Well, Hebrew is much of the same in that. And part of our literal interpretation of the Bible deals with its grammatical context. So another one is historical. Very important, historical. Interpreting Genesis requires that we understand as much as we can regarding ancient history. For example, Genesis presents the story of a universal flood. This must be factored into our understanding of world history. Thankfully, other cultures record Noah's flood in various forms, giving us a complete picture of the historical setting. Okay, now, um, it bothers some people when I make reference, and, and many of the ancient cultures had a flood story, either a universal flood or a flood that was local but, but very you know, widespread. Many of the cultures have that. And so some would say, well, Pastor Bonnie, the, the Babylonian culture had a story of a universal flood, and therefore, since the Mesopotamian heathen had that, it just sort of filtered its way into the, the Bible and that Moses was copying off of the heathen. No, I want you to think about it differently. The fact that other cultures had that story is indicative of the fact that it happened. Well, why is it in the book of Genesis? Because Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are a polemic that gives you the accurate account the stories that we read in those chapters of the Bible, they are replicated in cultures not just in the Middle East, the Ugaritic being, being a primary, not just in the Middle East. They are replicated across the world in ancient cultures. I want you to really let that sink into your head. So that the ancient Mexican culture has certain stories that are reflective of Scripture. That does not mean that, well, then the stories of the Bible were derived from those ancient cultures. No, no, no. It means that God gave his word in such a way as to correct. So the ancient cultures, they didn't attribute it right. They didn't tell the story right. They got the basic kernel of truth, but they didn't know what to do with it. So Genesis 1 through 11 is a polemic. It's an argumentation, and we need to understand the, the historic matters. Now, cultural. Point four, and I think I said this last week. We're going to interpret culturally to the best of our ability. Here, here's the good news. Here's the good news. There's never been a time when Bible scholars have the ability to look at the culture of the people to whom the book was originally written as we do today. So, for example, um, there is a huge problem in New Testament interpretation. New Testament, you go by, Pastor Monty, I'm going to buy a Bible commentary on the book of John. Okay, wonderful. You know what it's going to likely be? It will be a modernized regurgitation of what the Reformers had to say. 
The problem with that is the reformers were 1,500 years removed from the New Testament era. What I'm interested in is this. How did the New Testament people, and including the apostles, how did they view what they were writing? Okay, and I talked about that a little bit last week. The idiom that in, in goes into scripture. The camel, it's, it's easier for a rich man to go to heaven. It's easy for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. I was like, okay, rich people can't go to heaven because there's no way you're fitting a camel through the eye of a sewing needle. It is not talking about a sewing needle. The eye of the needle is an idiom. It's referring to an opening in the city gate that was called the eye of the needle where camels could go through, but it was more difficult for them to go through. It was more challenging. It was used as a way to limit the influx of people into the city rather than opening wide the gate. But if you don't understand that idiom from their cultural perspective, you can come up with an incredibly and entirely wrong interpretation of that idea. So we're going to look at uh, as much as we can the culture or the historical and then also the cultural. Penned in, and look at the culture, point four. Genesis was penned in the ancient Near East for ancient Near Eastern readers. Idioms and assumptions of background knowledge abound in Genesis. You ever read the book of Genesis and thought, man, I wish there was more detail in this? Or have you ever read it and thought, huh, the author's assuming people know something? Have you ever read the New Testament and assumed that? I'll tell you, certain parts of 2 Peter and the whole book of Jude is a grand assumption that you know something already, okay? And, and the truth is, we can know that but it's something that the church has set aside. A lot of that knowledge has been set aside. Thankfully, archeology span has shed a lot of light on the cultural context of the ancient Near East as well. By understanding the cultural norm of that region, we can better understand things in Genesis that appear odd to us. Okay, understanding Jewish thought is critical to understanding the more difficult passages in Genesis. Things that seem odd to us do not seem odd to the Hebrew people familiar with their culture. Okay, so when Jesus made the statement in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Well, the Bible mentions that he was at the, what we call now the Festival of Lights when he made that statement. But does anyone understand what he was saying? When he said, I am the light of the world, he was claiming to be the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God on earth. Now, that was not lost on the Jewish audience um, because they got irritated over it. The more famous one is John chapter 8, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. What, what do they do? They picked up stones to stone him. Well, why did they do that? Because they understood that to utter the words in the Greek New Testament, it's replicated as a go I me, to utter, utter those words was to claim to be God. And Jesus did precisely that. But if we don't understand the way they read it or the way they heard it, we're not going to understand it. And that's where a lot, that is the place where a lot of error is built. So we have to understand Jewish thought. Um, accurate students of scripture interpret the entire Bible in the light of Second Temple Judaism. Now, why do I say that? that? That's the time period of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because the collective knowledge of the Old Testament Jewish system, and by the way, they argued about everything, okay? So there wasn't any, you know, one, this is it, this is it, 100%. They argued about everything. But their collective knowledge is the culture in which the New Testament was given. So it would, it would not be wise for me as a, a white Anglo-Saxon, not Protestant, but we'll say it, Baptist, 
Um, it would not be wise for me to just reject everything they believed about it. Why? Because they were meticulous in trying to understand what the Bible said. And our goal is to understand it, and we can understand it if we go back and look at what their understanding was. Now, we may not always agree with their understanding. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. But it sheds light on the entire topic if we go back and say, what did they mean? I'll give you another example. So the synagogue system, the synagogue system of uh, the Old Testament and New Testament era was never something that was established by God in Scripture. Did you know that? There was one place for worship, and that was the temple, one place. But the synagogue system served as our Sunday school. So there's no Sunday school in the Bible, but we have Sunday school. Why? It comes as a place of, of instruction, and of course in the synagogue setting, also a place of prayer and a place of worship. Okay. But in the synagogue, what did they read? They read the Hebrew scrolls. They had a very well-set liturgy of what part of the Bible they're going to read next, the Hebrew scroll. And, and in fact, that's still true of the synagogues today. Interestingly enough, they avoid Isaiah 53, they don't even read it. They just skip over it. Why? Because it speaks too much of Jesus and they don't want to confuse people. That's to, the, to this day in the synagogue, that is the practice of the Jewish people. But in the synagogues, they would read the scripture. They read the scripture in Hebrew. Oh, Pastor Monty, good, because they were all Jewish people. They all understood Hebrew. By the time of the New Testament era, only the religious leaders, scribes, and a few very well-educated people could read Hebrew. Huh? Yeah, they spoke Aramaic. Now, by the way, they were at least bilingual because of what's called the Hellenization of the ancient world, the Greeks. The Greeks brought in the Greek language, but their typical language was Aramaic. Aramaic is a sister language or cousin language to Hebrew. But there's enough difference that if you, only, if you didn't speak Hebrew and understand Hebrew, there's enough of a difference between Hebrew and Aramaic that once the scroll was read, someone would stand up and give a paraphrase or a, uh, a commentary on what was read for the Aramaic listeners. Okay, well, Pastor Monty, what, what, what's important about that? Those commentaries, those, those, those written, the, pardon me, those read, recited interpretations, those were written down in something called the Targums. Anyone ever heard of the Targums? So in the Targums, you have a, a translation or paraphrase. I do Targuming all the time, by the way. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, every preacher does, okay? So in the Targums, you have, a, you have an explanation or a paraphrase or a summary. The reason they're valuable is we know Aramaic, and we can say, okay, this is what that passage meant to those people. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? Now, how do I targum? Okay, how do I targum? Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says you all ought to be nice to each other. Well, does the Bible actually use the words you all ought to be nice to each other? No, no, it doesn't. What have I done? That's a targum. Okay, I've taken a principle from Scripture and drawn that principle and said the Bible says you all ought to be nice to each other. I'm accurate in saying that, but I'm not quoting Scripture, but you know what I mean. Does everybody follow what I'm saying here? Okay, so that's important. The great thing about today, the, the crazy good thing about today, is the amount of information we have. Oh, Pastor, you know, we're talking about the book of Genesis. I mean, that, that goes back to the very beginning. Oh, yeah, you'd be right written, penned at the time of Moses, you'd be right about that. There was a discovery made in the 20th century of a place called Ugarit. Anyone ever hear, heard of this place? It is just north of Israel in what is today modern-day Lebanon. In that 
city, probably a city-state. In that city, they discovered a library of over 1,400 clay tablets. The problem was the language is dead and has been dead for multiple centuries, millennium. However, when you have these preserved tablets, linguistic people can examine that very laboriously and rebuild the language and understand the meaning. What the exciting thing is they've done that to a large extent, and now they're starting to translate some of these tablets. Those tablets put us right back into the time of Moses, as does our Old Testament, but from a different culture, listen carefully, however, a culture not far removed geographically from Israel itself. So when we ask ourselves, man, we're looking at the book of Genesis, and we say, what were these people thinking? We have a much better idea today than they did 25 years ago because we can compare all of this. Now, Pastor Ronnie, I'm, I just think we ought to, ought to use only the text of the Bible, okay? But I, I need to know the meaning of that text. And to know the meaning of that text, I want to know how did it sound to the ears of those people, okay? One of the great things about the Jewish people is everything remained rather static throughout the centuries, okay? So once they came to something, they kind of arrived at it. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 20th, late 20th century, and um, the Bible, the liberal scholars said this. Well, you know, the, we've got huge sections. The, 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 the great book of Isaiah, um, we're going to find this is the oldest copy in extent of the Hebrew Isaiah. And we're going to find that once we compare it to the current edition of the Hebrew, that it's going to be vastly different. They predicted that. And you know what happened? They found out it's exactly the same. Why? Because those people were so careful about every word and about every letter. And that discovery alone blew up all of theological liberalism that said the Bible evolved to its current state over a period of time. So we're gonna, we, we have to look at some of these things, but it's gonna help us in our understanding, okay? Uh, point B, accurate students of the scripture interpret the entire Bible in the light of Second Temple Judaism. I said that because that era coalesced with Jewish thought with that of the writers of the New Testament. It gave error to, it, it is a grave error to interpret the Bible in the light of the reformers who were 1,500 years late to the table. Does everyone understand that? So that's, that's part of the problem, okay? Someone said, oh, Pastor Monty, all these denominations disagree. Well, they do. But you know what part of the problem is? It's how you approach the Bible. That's the problem, okay? If you just make stuff up and then start a church, that's really popular today. But let's go back to what the text says and demonstrate what it actually says. Okay, point C. It is an error to assume that because other cultures share similar stories and traditions to the Hebrews, that Moses somehow borrowed material from them. And I've underlined this. Genesis is a corrective polemic against the erroneous traditions held by pagan peoples, especially the first 11 chapters. It corrects the errors of their traditions. Now, I have to hit this because this is different from a lot of places you're gonna go, okay? And this is the part that a lot of people can't stomach and they're like, oh, I, I don't know. How many of you believe, and I'm just gonna use a term in a very general sense, how many of you believe in what we call the supernatural? Should, I do, okay, I do. The book of Genesis is filled with the supernatural. The New Testament was penned in the light of a universal acceptance of the supernatural and not just God and angels. 
okay? It's really important to understand, not just the good guys. A lot of churches emphasize the good guys. Well, there's more to it. Look at point five, supernatural. Genesis and the entire Bible was written within the framework of a supernatural worldview. When interpreters ignore and or downplay the supernatural elements of Genesis, they miss the message of the entire book. Okay, what are some of the assumptions? God as creator, a being outside of our material realm is essential to understanding the message. That's why we take the Bible literally and the creation story literally. Okay, because God is the creator. Oh, Pastor, I just can't accept the six literal days and God rested on the seventh. Why? God is God. Do you believe in him? Could he not do that? And then he recorded it specifically, but I get ahead of myself. The next one, um, people, people, we're going to accept the explanation of supernatural beings other than God. Genesis provides material uh, that assumes the existence of angels, created beings, the origin of demons, the existence of a hybrid race of giants, much more on that later, and the likelihood of interaction with a realm we do not usually see. Okay, that's really important. Pastor, this sounds kind of spooky. It shouldn't. The Bible is filled with this. Okay, not just the book of Genesis, but the whole assumption of the New Testament is this supernatural realm. Do not be mentally misled by the word supernatural as commonly used in our culture. The unseen realm, and I've written his name down, Dr. Michael Heiser. I don't, believe, I don't agree with him on every point, but I've thrown his name out because he is a scholar's scholar. Dr. Michael Heiser uses that term, is a created world that is natural but different from our own. The unseen realm is natural. Why? Because God created that. But it's different from our own world. It exists parallel to our world. It intersects throughout the Bible. Uh, show me an example, Pastor Money. Anytime an angel shows up, anytime an angel shows up, that's an example of an intersection between parallel worlds. The world of the supernatural is as real as the world in which we live, okay? And that's, that's what the Bible teaches. To reject that, I think, is to reject Scripture out of hand. Um, and then point C, not, uh, pardon me, point D, point D, and I'll finish with this. Um, adopting a supernatural interpretive framework means nothing is off the table. In other words, literal interpretations of the words and meanings need not be changed or glossed over in deference to science. Boom. There it is. There it is. I'm looking for the meaning of scripture. I'm looking for what it meant to them. I'm looking for how they interpreted it. And then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to accept it with a heart of believing faith. Because Genesis is the beginning. Genesis is the foundation. Genesis is the basis for our faith. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for some thoughts this morning that we were able to share I pray, Lord, that you'll give us clarity and accuracy and, Lord, a sense of excitement and wonder as we look into this tremendous book of the Bible, a true foundation of our faith. Thank you for your love for us. Help, help us, Lord, to be open-minded. If we disagree, help us to do so agreeably, knowing that one day when we get to heaven, it'll all be clear. But you've given us enough that we can see things that answer questions in the here and now. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody go to church.